Good morning. I'm so glad you're at church, not just at home waiting for the Chiefs game to start. Thank you. It's very meaningful, all of you in red. I see you, okay? I just want you to know you are seen. Sorry, yeah, John. Thank you for, yeah, that's just a coincidence. Just a coincidence. That's right. Well, welcome. This morning, we've got one goal. Just one thing we're trying to accomplish. I want to move the needle a little bit. I want to convince you. I want to try to persuade you. Things are not as bad as they seem. I hear though, yeah, good luck, all right? Why am I trying to persuade you about this? I, have you ever tried to have a spiritual conversation with somebody lately? Someone who's not a Christian. Someone who doesn't share your worldview. It can be scary, like, whoa. Like, because there's this narrative in the background, they're not going to like this, they're not open to this, things are really bad, and if you open your mouth, it's going to get worse. This morning, I just want to gently see if we can move the needle a little bit to say things aren't as bad as we think they are. Dr. Robert Putnam, the Harvard professor, listen to him describe America. And this was long. This was like a 20-minute thing. I just kind of cut it down. Here's Putnam from his book, The Upswing, How America Came Together a Century Ago and How We Can Do It Again. Here's him describing the zeitgeist. What's going on? While Americans enjoy a degree of educational opportunity, abundance, and personal freedom of which previous generations only dreamed, which could tempt an observer to paint a rosy picture of America. This prosperity came at a cost. While industries spawned by technological advance have allowed huge corporations to produce unparalleled profits, very little of this wealth has trickled down. Politicians are regularly exposed in corruption taking advantage of their position in creative ways. Sex scandals are common among the elite. Even religious leaders are not immune. Public debates are characterized not by a reasoning of ideas, but of a demonization of those on the other sides. Party platforms move to the extremes. The result is a nation more and more divided along political, economic, and racial lines. The inevitable result will be a gridlock in a hobbled public sector. Citizens rightly despair that public officials will ever be able to get anything accomplished at all. In a new America with technological innovation, new forms of communication have both disconnected and reconnected many in countless ways. This rearranges identities, beliefs, and value systems. As a result, many experience loneliness, isolation, and tribalism as traditional social structures give way. How are we doing? You okay so far? All right. The increasingly global information age is inundating people with news from every corner of God's green earth. And this information threatens to overwhelm the individual trying to make sense of it all. New ideas in science, 
philosophy, and religion upend traditional touchstones at an astonishing pace. And a culture dominated by commerce and consumerism has made advertising an often lamentable part of daily life in America. Even the reliability of the free press, that critical component of a democratic system, has become questionable as a drive for profit has overwhelmed a desire to tell the truth. A fevered pace of life is often blamed for widespread stress and anxiety, especially among our nation's young people. This nation seems no longer recognizable or intelligible to those brought up in an earlier age, turning many Americans toward nostalgia for a bygone era. Sound familiar? How we doing? Everybody okay? Putnam asked the question, what are we to do? What are we to do? Is America just careening off a cliff? Things are not as bad as they seem. And look, I edited that from like a 20-minute audio book. I mean, it just went on and on and on. It was crazy. We didn't, and there's the stuff we didn't even talk about was just like, holy cow, this is, a, this is a lot. But what would you say if I told you that Putnam is not actually describing today's America? That description you just heard is not about America of 2022. That description you just heard is also not about America of 2010, 1970. It's about America of 1870. That is an accurate balance sheet of people describing what was happening after the Civil War. Things were circling the drain. And people were wondering if this young nation would survive. Felt like things were heading off a cliff. Now, please let me be clear. My purpose this morning is not to save democracy. I'm not aware of a political party that can raise the dead. If there ever becomes one, we might retalk things. But my hope this morning is us, the kingdom of God, Christians. Putnam cites, among many complicated factors, one reason that kept things from careening off a cliff evangelical Christians rolling up their sleeves and getting to work. We've been here before, folks. Things are not as bad as they seem, and yet more is required of us than we are aware. There's got to be a shift. We started this series by saying something shifted. This is not your grandma's America. Gone are the days where someone experiences a tragedy on Friday night, cancer, and their first thought, I got to get to church. What does a pastor think about this? Those days are gone. Life is what happens to you when you're Googling cancer symptoms. We are living in an increasingly isolated age, and it is creating hostility and questions towards faith. What are we to do? Well, would you be encouraged if I said, we've actually been here before. And we are connected to a group of people who we've got a pretty decent track record in these moments. And yet, something has to shift. If something shifted and we don't shift, 
we'll lose our footing in this. Appropriate energies for appropriate mo moments. And I'm not talking about doctrine and theology. No, no, no. We're evangelicals, all right? We keep the main thing, the main thing. Centered on scripture, the good news of Jesus, new birth. All right, that's who we are, baby. We're not changing that. We're recognizing, though, something shifted and our message isn't connecting. What do we do? How do we navigate this moment? Well, we've been talking about, as a church, our mission. How we want to create space for people to discover Jesus and find their place in his story. We've talked about these spaces where that's going to happen. This week, we're talking about one of the most crucial spaces. Yes, it's last, but it's foundational. That space is bless. How we move ministry beyond these four walls into our neighborhoods. Because look, the other spaces gather, right? We want to gather. That's a space where we can discover Jesus and find our place in his story. Gather can't happen unless we're blessing. People are not just going to wander in here because we've got a really cool sign. We got a cool sign, all right? I'm not saying we don't have a cool sign. It's a great sign. I walk by it all the time. But it's just not going to happen. People are going to come to church because somebody moved toward them. Somebody listened to them. Maybe they shared a meal. They served them. And then they shared their story. and said, hey, look, this is going to sound bizarre, but I'm new creation. I, I'm different. And there's a whole group of us that are different. Come with us. Check this out. It's relationship that's going to drive us into the gathering. But again, the gathering's not enough. It's like, okay, well, we just sat in a room together for an hour a week. I'm not trying to minimize what happens here. Not trying to minimize that. I'm giving my life to making sure we're clearly communicating God's word, that, that people are really encountering the God of Scripture within these four walls. But we also got to move into small groups. You got to share your story. You can't, you can't hide out on the edges. You got to be known. You got to risk being known. And you got to serve. And then that, well, then what do we do? Then we, our love just pours out in the streets. We break ministry out of these four walls. Or eight, however many this odd room has. <laughs> so if it's true, if it's true that things aren't as bad as they seem, and it's going to require a shift, what does that look like? How do we do that? Well, Jesus provides us with a map, and it comes from an odd place. Jesus provides for us a map of what an integrated life looks like. A life where it's like we are in a relationship with God, and that relationship disrupted a few things. If you have a relationship with God and it hasn't disrupted anything in your life, Likewise, if you have a disruptive relationship with God, why aren't we seeing more disruption in our workplaces? Let me be clear. I am not saying go be a jerk in your office place. If that's what you hear me saying, let me just be, uh, let me just be very, very clear. If God's love has been poured out in our hearts, if we're disciples of someone who died for his enemies, and that rearranged our life, we're going to approach the spaces that we head into differently. And if we're not, the question is, why are we experiencing this disintegration? 
Jesus, in the story we're about to look at, goes after this disintegration head on. A lawyer approaches him, and this is the Craig authorized translation, says, hey, I've got a checklist of what it takes to be right with God. Can you just double check it to make sure we're good? And Jesus says to him, have you considered the checklist approach may be wrong? See, love, relationships can't come with a checklist. If we love people because it does something for our relationship with God, it gets us right with God. If we love people to get from God, are we loving people? Attachment psychologists talk a lot about in attachment relationships. So think about the relationship with a, a newborn baby and its mother. In order for that newborn baby to receive care, there needs to be an attachment that's made. And how do you make attachments? It can't be about anything other than the relationship. It's, hey, I'm your caregiver. I'm your mom. I'm here to provide for you and care for you and love you and teach you that this world's a joyful place. That's the relationship. Likewise, if we're going to love people who have a problem, we can't think they are the problem. All right? When I say things aren't as bad as we think they are, I'm not minimizing injustice in the world. I'm not minimizing that there are people doing terrible and godless things in the world. I'm not minimizing that. What I am saying is that our way through that is love. And the love that I've been seeing and hearing a lot about in just the Christian blogosphere and is just not doing it. And Jesus is calling us to a different type of love. And this love is actually beautifully illustrated through the Apple Plus TV show, Ted Lasso. Maybe you've seen it. It's a show with a ton of language, so don't watch it with your kids. And then say, Pastor said we can watch this. And Pastor, I just, it's okay. But it's a show about like this aw shucks Kansas football coach who is like just this joyful kind of Ned Flanders, beautiful person. And he gets transplanted to England, where he's now coaching football. And he knows nothing about it. And so he goes from a place where it's like he's healthy and happy to a place where it is not healthy and no one is happy. And they call him terrible names as he walks on the street and they're rooting for his demise. The show's opening credits open with Ted sitting in an empty stadium and all the chairs are blue with graffiti on them and there's just trash everywhere. And Ted will sit in a seat and as he sits in that seat, the seat turns red. And then what starts to happen is that red spreads to the seats around him. And before you know it, a whole section is red. And you notice the graffiti's gone and the trash is picked up. And what the creators of that show are beautifully illustrating is that health has a huge impact on unhealth. Healthy people 
can move into unhealthy environments and transform them. Now, if that's true, how much more can new creation people move into old creation spaces and start to see new creation? If it's true that health can be transformative in an unhealthy place, how much more is it true that people with the Spirit of God living inside them, people who, as Paul says in Colossians, have the mind of Christ, how much more true is it that these people can transform the environments they're at? That's what we mean by bless. And the model that we're given for how to love like that and how to move into the world like that is the Good Samaritan. Now, just so you're aware, you may be familiar with this story, but right out of the gate, I just want to tell you, the Good Samaritan is not a story that is teaching you, hey, by the way, when you're walking on the street and see someone nearly dead, you should probably stop to help. That is not the point of the Good Samaritan. You did not need a parable to get that, all right? This is human decency. The story of the Good Samaritan, though, comes in a context that's moving people away from this checklist approach to God into a way that just says, hey, we're just going to make love the end goal. It's not going to be about being right. It's just about, hey, we love God, and we're just going to follow that love wherever it takes us. It's going to take us to places that make us squirm, all right? It's going to take us to places that challenge us, that take us into our stretch zone. It's going to take us to places where we're like, man, this was way easier just to have a checklist. Can we go back to the checklist? I like the checklist. But Jesus is inviting us to an integrated life. If it really is true that our deepest need, our isolation from God, if that was If that need was met by Jesus' death on the cross, how much more true is it than that we are just people who love people who have nothing to offer us, who love outsiders? All this is about is integrating our love for God into our relationship with other people. Not, Not just blocking it off. And it makes me squirm, okay? I don't wanna preach this message because I don't wanna live this message many days. I'm content not knowing my neighbors. I'm content being comfortable. That's why it's called comfort, because we like it. But the invitation is to move out of the comfort zone into a place that stretches us. And in that stretch zone, what we experience is a love that really does flip seats. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. What we see in the story of the Good Samaritan, again, is not a morality tale of like, help dead people on the side of the road and we'll call you a Good Samaritan. It's not the point of this story. Jesus is trying to answer the question, what what does someone who has a relationship with God, how how do they interact in the world? Someone who really does love God with all their heart, soul, and mind and strength. How do they then go into their spaces differently? And let me just tell you out of the gate, it's overwhelming. It's, it, it, Jesus sets the bar so high. It's, I mean, I remember just this earlier this week as I was prepping for this, I just was like, this is a lot. How can we do this? How can we do this? Jesus gives us six Rhythms, six practices that train us to grow into 
these type of people. Remember, Jesus would say things like, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Mustard seeds grow. You don't just, boom! Look at that garden. Things take time. As we read this, give yourself the grace to say, Lord, Lord, I want to set myself on a trajectory of trust and say, I'll go where this love takes me and I'm going to understand I'm not going to nail it this week. We're in this for the long haul. We didn't get in this mess overnight. We're not going to get out of this mess overnight. So Luke chapter 10, the story of the Good Samaritan. What we do around here sometimes is I'm going to read this text and then I'm going to say this is the word of the Lord. And we think what that helps to do is it helps to cultivate a grateful, grateful heart. Right? Things are embodied. Experiences. Yesterday I went kayaking with my kids. It's a different experience being in the kayak than watching the kayak. All right? Saying thanks be to God does something to you. Some of you are like, you can kayak? Yes. I'm very good at kayaking, all right? Matthew 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Why is he he doing that? Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law? He replied. How do you read it? He answered, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind uh, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly. Do this, you'll live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked, Jesus, uh, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, went away leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going that same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, He took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wound, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him. And when I return, I'll reimburse you from any extra expenses that you may have. Which of these three do you think was neighbor's to a man who fell into the hands of robbers. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Father in heaven, Father, approaching you with a checklist is is so satisfying. We have these images of you. We have these ideas about you. And if we just can complete some tasks, we'll get blessing, we'll be fine. Father, I pray that we would 
hold that way of thinking in our open hands before you today and, and receive what Jesus invites us into, this new way of being where, where love is not a means to the end but is the end. Where our love for you pours out into love for others. The way you've loved us is how we love others. Father, the world that was described, even in the 1870s, and the world that we live in, truly doesn't know this love. God, we don't know the extent and the depths of this love. So Father, I pray that we would receive correction to move toward just loving, expecting nothing in return. Jesus' name, amen. So there's six things we talked about, six things that Jesus is, is really kind of correcting in the Pharisee's heart. Because remember, what was the context? The Pharisee, this lawyer, a lawyer in that day does, don't think of like, you know, ambulance chaser. There are people who studied the law, the Torah, and they knew it inside and out. And he approaches Jesus and says, hey, how do I be right with God? It's this, right? Loving him, relationship, right? It's the relationship with God that's, that's how I get right with God. And she's like, yeah, totally. And the guy's like, great. And then it says that he was seeking to justify himself. He's like, I'm doing that, right? I'm doing that. See? Who's my neighbor? That person, this lawyer, there is an answer that he is expecting to hear. And we know what that answer is based on the parable Jesus tells. Okay? The answer he was expecting to hear was, who's my neighbor? Other people who love God just like me, right? My neighbor are people who have cleaned up lives, who are following Torah, who are trying to make this work, right? That's my neighbor. Because think about this for a second. The story is not called the good Israelite. All right? What happens? This robber is beaten, and who approaches first? A priest. That priest, that's like, oh, good. Woo, we're okay. God's guy is here. If anyone knows what to do, it's a priest. What does the priest do? Walks on the other side of the road. Say, Ooh, that wasn't good. Well, you know, there can be bad apples. All right, so who's next? Who's next? A, a, a Levite. This is even better. It's like a priest's assistant. They all know what to do. So, you know, the boss was bad, but they got it. He walks on the other side of the road. Who helps? A Samaritan. An outsider. Someone who the, the, they, what? No way. This was scandalous. I don't know if you know this. Samaritans, like this is, this is not eisegesis. Samaritans have bad theology. We know it's written down in some places. They, have, they like thought that uh, Mount Zion wasn't the mountain God was going to worship. They, they talked about Mount Gerizim. Their view of God wasn't like the the Trinity that the Old Testament set the stage for. It was more like Islam. Like these, people had, these people had bad theology. And it's like, wait, what's happening here? Now look, listen to me very carefully. Jesus is not saying doctrine doesn't matter. Okay, please hear me say that. Look at how he even just engages with this lawyer. And verse 25, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What does Jesus say? He's revolutionary, but where does he point him back to? What is written in the law? He's not saying, well, here's, my, here, you know, here's just this random theory I heard in Egypt. He's pointing him back to God's word. So please hear, what, what 
Jesus is not rejecting is the Old Testament, is God's word. No, 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 no. He's trying to push the guy into a deeper understanding of God's word. What got twisted was God's word was being used as a checklist for do, do, do. if I just do this, I will get this. And Jesus is saying, you'll never be able to love like this so long as you keep God on a checklist. You just won't. It can't happen. Relationship with God. If God is who the Bible says he is, a relationship with that God is disruptive. If you have a relationship with the one true creator God, who who sent his son to die for you, that disrupts things in your life. And Jesus is saying, lists do not disrupt. Lists just view people as, okay, I can use these people to get what I want from God. And it's not God. I may want a good retirement. I may want my kids to behave. But I don't want God. Because that's disruptive. Jesus, though, is saying, hey, I'm going to present with you a picture of what love really looks like. And it's crazy disruptive. And there's six things that Jesus says, like, hey, these are markers. If you cultivate these six things, these six things can't coexist with a checklist mentality. All right? There's a way to love people that uses them. Here's a way to love people in a way that integrates God's love for us. Thing number one of how the Good Samaritan models this. Empathy. Look with me at Luke 10, 33. Empathy. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. Jesus is telling a story. He's trying to engage his listener's imagination. What the text tells us is that this good Samaritan was beaten and left for dead. And a, a, a priest comes up. We don't know. The man was alive. We don't know what that priest saw. Did he hear someone say, like, help, help? Did he just see this violent, bloody body with, like, just the chest cavity moving up and down? What did he see? Whatever it was, the paradigm he was operating out of was, this is a problem, but it's not my problem. And he moves to the other side of the road. He saw someone in need, and that became a threat to where he was trying to go. I've got to move around this. See, empathy, though, is what the good Samaritan experienced. It says, the text says, he saw him and had pity on him. He saw this man in need and was moved in his gut. Splagna, as the New Testament says. That's your gut. That's where you feel things. One of the joys I've had as a pastor... This sounds like a weird thing to say. It's joy. But sitting with people when the car's spinning out. Things are crazy, crisis. They call. We sit. We hang together. And one of the things I like to ask people is, hey, what are you thinking? No, what are you feeling? I just give it a punchline. What are you feeling? And they say, well, I'm thinking. And they tell me, I'm thinking this could happen, that could happen. I'm like, no, 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 no. What are you feeling? The Good Samaritan felt something. We call that Empathy. It's not just seeing a need and going, gosh, somebody ought to do something about that. But it's 
feeling the weight of that need. That's how we know we are moving away from a checklist to a real embodied love is when it starts affecting our gut, our feelings, that we feel the needs of other people. That we don't just like, oh yeah, I know that's a need. Somebody ought to do something about it. But actually having compassion, sympathy. Sympathy means to feel alongside. To see a need and to say, man, I feel the weight of that need with you. That's the type of love that is, is about the relationship, not about getting things. That's the type of love that says like, hey, I am present. I am aware. One of the things that happens when we start talking about the ethics of the kingdom of God, we start talking about how Jesus is moving toward needs, a question naturally arises, and it's a good question, but it's a question like, holy cow, there's so many needs out there, how in the world can I meet them all? Right? Like, oh my goodness, like, I'll never get to work if I'm just, like, constantly, like, trying to meet everybody's needs. Like, is Jesus inviting me to be a doormat? Is he inviting me to be codependent? Like, what in the world's happening? Those are good questions, right? It's counting the cost before we start building. But what Jesus, though, is, is inviting us into is not to say, like, okay, whose needs do I have to meet? That doesn't sound like Jesus. That sounds more like this lawyer. Who's my neighbor? But a better question might be with seeing what the Good Samaritan saw. And he saw and he had empathy. It's, who's God put on my heart? What are the needs that I feel? What are the needs that they just stay with me? Like, oh, somebody ought to do something about that. Look, there are people in our church who have those empathy, that crushing weight for different people. I was talking with someone in our church who she's like, man, I really have a heart to help older people. Nobody ever told me aging was so very lonely. Last week I met with somebody, a friend, he's 75 years old. And he's just very honest with me, we have a good time together. And I was like, hey, can you tell me what you as a 75 year old wished that you knew when you were 35 years old? He said, man, I just wish someone had prepared me to know that life really does go on without you. And coming to grips with that can be really lonely. There are people in this room who feel the weight of that and say, man, I want to help those people follow Jesus. I want to know how they can experience in that loneliness Christ being formed in them. That's the empathy. That's what it's It's being sensitive to the Spirit's leading. God, who are the people you are putting on my heart? There's other people in our church who, I don't know if you remember when the Afghan uh, crisis happened. Uh, they were like, man, we're going to have all these refugees, and that burdens us. Can you imagine? Can you imagine just giving like, hey, you got 30 seconds, and you got to grab all your belongings and go. Where are we going? Or just somewhere safe, because it's not safe here. Everything you know, gone. There are people in our congregation, God has put refugees on their heart. So the question is not, well, who's my neighbor? It's who has God put on my heart? And one of the things that we can just be gracious with each other, who God has put on your heart, is not who God has put on someone else's heart. That's the beauty of a body. That's the beauty of this new creation community is that God is doing a lot of things. That's why it's so important that we serve out of our passions. We talked about that last week, what it means to look like to serve out of our passions within these four walls. And I've got really good news. I had a lot of conversations with people who are going to be resigning from their roles because they're like, I had 
I had no desire to serve here. I had a desire to do something else and they just threw me over here. It's like, well, that's great. You're fired. We're moving you around. Because we want people to serve out of their passions. Why? Because we believe that the Spirit leads through that. Look what he did with a good Samaritan. This man was moved by what he saw. Two very religious people were moved away. He was moved toward. Who is my neighbor? No. Who is God putting on my heart? The second thing, the second rhythm that the Good Samaritan invites us into is this rhythm of getting our hands dirty. The Good Samaritan binds the wounds of this man who was robbed. Look with me at Luke 10, 34. He, the Samaritan, went to him and bandaged his wounds. Getting your hands dirty. This is like pre-sterile hospitals. This is gross. I also, if we can use a little bit of righteous imagination, I doubt the good Samaritan had a first aid kit. All right? He was not a doctor. The fact that he was on this road meant he was a business person. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho for hundreds of years after Jesus told this parable still was a, a hotbed of robbery. All right? It was a bad neighborhood. The only reason he went there is because it was the straightest route to get business done. He was not a doctor, more than likely, as Jesus tells the story. But he got his hands dirty. Love is always going to invite us out of our comfort zone. If you've been around Pastor Marshall at all, you know he has these three concentric circles. Our comfort zone, then outside of that is our stretch zone, and then outside of that is a danger zone. We don't want to go to the danger zone. That's where it's bad things happen, all right? We do want to get out of the stretch zone, out of the comfort zone, into the stretch zone. The stretch zone is where love flourishes where we get challenged. It's where we get our hands dirty. You know, when a tree falls in your neighbor's yard, your first question is not, how did my neighbor vote? Did it line up with me? Oh, it didn't. All right, what would Jesus do? He would move the tree. Samaritans had and Jesus corrects that, by the way. John 4. It just, I just have to say this because I'm getting some looks. I'm like, what's Craig saying? Jesus corrects the Samaritan theology, the Samaritan woman at the well. He says, you worship what you don't know. We Jews worship what we know. So he's not saying theology doesn't matter. He corrects her bad theology. But agreement and being right is not a prerequisite to be loved. If we look at people as problems to be solved, we're going to put all their problems in a certain order. Well, we've got to fix this, we've got to fix this, and we've got to fix this. Then we'll start loving. But if we look at people not as problems to be solved, but people to be loved, we're going to get our hands dirty. It's just going to require, it's going to move us out of our comfort zone. We had a plan, right? I had a plan of how to help my neighbor. Man, they're way messier than I thought. All right. We're going to go back to the drawing board. We get our hands dirty. This next one, the third way that the Good Samaritan, the third rhythm that we're invited into when it comes to loving our neighbors is to bring healing. Luke 10, 34 says this, that the Good Samaritan anointed his cuts with oil and wine. Healing. Uh, any, any Israelite hearing this phrase, their mind would have been drawn back to that whole phrase of having wounds and then those wounds being anointed with oil and wine. That's Isaiah 1. 
Isaiah 1, the prophet comes to Israel and says, Israel, you're unhealthy from the head, from your head to your toes. You have all these cuts that aren't bound up and they've not been anointed with oil and wine. The book then continues to say, God will come. He's going to come and he's going to heal your cuts. Those cuts are sin. He's going to bring healing. Then there's a plot twist in the middle of the book where Jesus says this. About Jesus, it said, by his wounds we are healed. And so here what you have here is Jesus being very subtle. He's laying, a, he's laying a hint saying this. What if, what if instead of seeing people as problems to be solved, we brought healing? And some of that healing was a little bit of imagination about, hey, we want to imagine not seeing you as the problem that you have, but seeing as where you could go. What would life look like if you were in the kingdom? I can imagine if you, man, my neighbor is crazy outgoing. I, he's not a Christian. He loves chatting with people. He loves chatting with me. And it's like, man, if it's a problem to be solved, it's how do I get out of this conversation so I can go eat dinner? If it's a person to be loved, it's like, man, God has made this person so outgoing. What would that look like if that heart was reunited to a father and then just went crazy on our community? It's righteous imagination that brings healing. Not looking at where we are, it's looking at where we're going. It's saying like, hey, neighbors, there are problems. Things are not going well. But you can be invited into this new creation. And this new creation can transform the old creation. And all these beautiful things that God, you're in his image. And all these things we see about you, imagine what would happen if those were brought into the kingdom. Bringing healing. And the next thing. The fourth thing that the Good Samaritan does is he sacrifices his comfort for another's well-being. Look at Luke 10, 34. He sacrifices his comfort for another's well-being. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey. This is a rocky, uncomfortable road. Now he's got this half-dead guy who's got to keep from falling off a donkey he sacrificed his own comfort for the well-being of another. Where's your comfort zone? Home alone? Those 10 minutes you get when like the kids are fed, you've just kind of gone off into the bathroom and you can bring up ESPN? That moment of like right after you get out of work, you pull into the driveway, you're not out of the car yet, you're just answering texts, your comfort zone. Are there comforts that we need to sacrifice so that our neighbors can experience a love like this? Are there, what are the things that we're being invited to give up so others can experience this love? See, look, something shifted. The culture shifted under our feet and it's gonna require sacrifice. We can't expect, oh, someone will take care of this. This will change. We have to move toward our neighbors in love. And that's going to require maybe being misunderstood. That's going to require maybe like financial cost. You know, uh, Generation Z, the generation that's coming up behind me, I read that uh, in classrooms, participation is very low. Students can, on the whole, not everybody, but on the whole, they can have this great fear of getting up and speaking in front of the class. Because they're digital natives. 
they know this could be around for forever. And so that fear keeps them from like, hey, I don't want to participate. Sacrificing our own comfort says, I may stop to help somebody and this might get filmed and it might be misunderstood. I may be trying to teach someone something and they're saying, oh, you're just over explaining everything. You think you're a know-it-all. I'm going to go out of my comfort zone because that's a rhythm that keeps me from a checklist. It keeps me away from like, okay, God, I did it. What can you get me? But it's like, hey, how can Christ be formed in me? I'll let someone ride on my donkey. Number five, what does the Good Samaritan do? The Good Samaritan meets the man's core needs. All right, I went to college, paid all my bills, so you're welcome for this. The Good Samaritan met a guy who got robbed, which means he had no money, okay? So this robbed guy had no money. He's broke. His card's getting declined. His account is overdrawn. What does the good Samaritan do? Verse 35, the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. When I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expenses you might have. He met this robbed man's core need. Okay? We do not meet the needs of people we love with our core needs. We do not, it is not meeting someone's need to say, well, I see your life, I'm an expert, here you go. No one is going to move toward us if we are using them as a project. I've got to meet somebody's needs, I imagine this is your need, here you go. But when people are seen, and we actually feel the weight of their need, and we move to meet that need, the word for that is love. And people only listen to you if they're moving toward you. How do people move toward us? Love. We use this acronym for bless around here quite a bit. Bless, the letter B is begin with prayer. Right, we're sensitive to what the Spirit's leading to us. God, who have you put on my heart today? Then we listen, that's L. We eat together. Right, no agenda, let's just be together, let's eat, share a relationship. Then we serve them. That's the first S. And then we share our story. And, and we think that's a good trajectory because if we do that, if we start with prayer, God, who are you putting on my heart? Help me be sensitive. And then we listen to them. We're less likely to be like, I'm going to meet my needs through you. We really are going to serve people and meet their core needs. That's in the show Ted Lasso. One of the first things Ted Lasso does is he fixes the shower head in the locker room. Why? That's what the players cared about. Was that their deepest need? No, they were a losing soccer team in a toxic culture. But he's like, I care about you. And people start listening. As a church, if we just live in this panic, anxiety-driven, and like, ah, everything's super bad, it's getting worse and worse and worse. Like, I mean, I do this every time. Every time a a news story breaks, I have four websites I go to. I'm not telling you which four they are, but they're all different politically, okay? Every time I do this, and three of the four of them are consistently terrifying. Like, some headlines are literally, did you think it could get any worse? It's as bad as it could be. Everything's headed to hell in a handbasket. 
If that's the air you breathe, when you go to meet needs, you're going to be a very anxious person. I got to love the Good Samaritan like Jesus told me to. He said, do this and I'll live. I got to do this. Jesus isn't anxious at all in this story. He's a calm presence. And when we're calm, when we, we have empathy, when we're listening, when we're praying, we can actually be invited into what God might be wanting to do in the situation. We might actually experience transformation rather than bringing our anxieties, just spreading it everywhere else. Water's great. Come on in. Lastly, and this may be the most important for our moment, the Good Samaritan doesn't dump and run. If you have a checklist mentality, how do we get through this as quickly as possible with as little pain as possible? Look with me again at verse 35. He says, uh, it says he brought him, he brought, or excuse me, verse 34, then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, what does that imply? He spent the night. So the next day, he wasn't like, man, this took a lot of time. I've got to make up for lost time. I mean, he was going somewhere. He didn't just travel on this road for no reason. He had money to make. He probably had a family to feed. But he spent the night with this person. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him. When I return, I'll reimburse you for any of the expenses. Now, this story, Jesus is trying to engage our imagination. If I can go beyond this a little bit and just engage your imagination, is it possible can you imagine, I'm not saying does the text say this, I'm saying can you imagine that perhaps a relationship is budding out of this? Can you imagine the Good Samaritan and this guy being like, hey, how'd you two meet? Well, you wouldn't believe this. I was walking on this road, people beat me up, and this guy was the only guy that helped me. Or can you imagine the Good Samaritan, is he like, okay, I did my thing, we're out of here. He doesn't dump and run. It's a trajectory that he's staying on. He's saying, like, look, I'm here. I'm here to meet your needs. I'm here for you. There is no quick fix when it comes to loving our neighbors. Who are our neighbors? Who are the people that God's put in our sphere of influence? Who in our family? Who in our workplace? Who in our school? Are we being invited to say, like, God's put them on my heart? Expect it not to be quick. Expect it to be frustrating. Expect it to be two steps forward, one step back. Because that's how we've been loved. If we think about the story of the Good Samaritan, who is Jesus in this story? Luke is trying to paint a clear picture that Jesus isn't actually the Good Samaritan, though the Good Samaritan acts like Jesus. In this story, Jesus is the man on the road. Luke says that this man on the road fell among robbers. Earlier in Luke's gospel, he tells us that the Pharisees were frustrated with him because he had fallen among robbers. He hung out with robbers. And if we bring Isaiah's gospel, if we put that as a lens to see this story, what do we learn? By his wounds, we have been healed. The reason that we can love like the Good Samaritan is not... Because we took that phrase, Jesus says, do this and you will live. Go and do likewise. We're like, okay, it's a new carrot. I've got to try. It's because this is how we've been loved. We've been loved. God did for us what we could never do. And he didn't do it in a dump and run way. He didn't do it as quickly as possible. He saw our isolation from the Father. 
And he came, he moved toward us at great cost, sacrificing his own comfort. I don't know, I would imagine heaven pretty comfortable. I don't know, I would imagine death on a cross, sacrificing your comfort. And by his wounds, we have been healed. To then go out into the world as someone who doesn't bring healing, as someone who doesn't disrupt the way things are, is disintegrated from the love we have experienced. It's not who we are. Why does the church have a good track record when it comes to living in a society and a culture where things aren't going well, where things are unhealthy? Because this message, this gospel is this capstone, the centerpiece of our identity. We are disciples of one who died for his enemy. We are not disciples of one who went on an evening news show and had better answers than his enemy. We are disciples of one who left heaven for someone not worthy of heaven. We are not disciples of someone who was always right. And when we experience a love that has, the only agenda is relationship, inviting us into that. It's not about fruit, it's about being. The fruit grows like crazy. We're not telling the story of the priest and the Levite. We're telling the story of the good Samaritan. They had things to do, probably important things. We're not telling their story. We're telling the story of the person who risked it all for the love. We've talked earlier in here about Clarence Jordan. Clarence Jordan, a native of Georgia, went away to seminary in, in Louisville at my alma mater, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Got a PhD in New Testament. And then he was burdened by the unhealthy environment, the old creation that he saw in Georgia. Segregation, racism. And he said, I want to be a new creation person moving into this unhealthy system. And I'll do it as long as it takes. And it took a long time. It took a long time to get that farm going. And there were obstacles along the way. We talked earlier, the clan showed up day one and said, we don't like people that do things like you do. I don't know, that would be terrifying. Like, can you imagine just how scary that would be? Terrifying. They burned crosses on their property. Clarence Jordan's young kids who are still alive today tell the story that when they were walking on the street, their parents said, just as a precaution, if you see headlights when you're walking at night, hide. Have you ever had to say that to your kids? Have you ever had to say that because you're like, hey, we're going to be on mission for Jesus? Well, what's happening? Well, you, we got to hide. I've never experienced anything like that. That's a disruptor. Millard Fuller, he was a, a resident at Koinonia Farms. And he said, I've never met anybody, never met anybody like Clarence Jordans who thought like Jesus thought. He embodied how Jesus lived. Never met anybody like that. And you're like, well, what in the world? The farm's gone. They got burned down. I mean, what was the fruit of that? Oh, yeah, love. That's nice. One of the most amazing things, when you stop caring about fruit, when you stop caring about results and start caring about being and love, not always, but many times, 
When you truly stop, when you trust that to God, amazing things happen. Clarence Jordan set out to build a farm. That was it. A farm that said, like, hey, segregation is not acceptable. We're moving away from this. And that farm was lost. But what came out of the ashes of that? Miller Fuller, you may know him, he's the founder of Habitat for Humanity. It's amazing. Right, we set out to build a farm. We didn't know what we are doing. We're just going to have a relationship. We're going to love. We didn't know what was going to happen. And look, Habitat for Humanity is born out of that. We don't, we're not talking about the man's politics. Jimmy Carter said that a deeply impacting person on both his faith and his call to action in the world, Clarence Jordan. When we stop worrying about results and we start worrying about being, that mustard seed, that small thing grows. And you can't control how it grows. It's crazy. The invitation for us this morning is to break ministry out of these four walls. Is to say, God, who have you put on my heart? Who have you put on my heart and how can we love them expecting nothing in return and trusting that you're at work even when we don't feel it? Father, Father, the weight of this invitation is so heavy. God, no one in here can go and do likewise unless you're with us. So Father, we claim the promise that you have. Lo, you're with us always to the end of the age. Father, I pray that we would be people who your love just spills out into our networks. God, I pray that Compass Church would be known as being just a big disruptor of the status quo, of the way things are, God, that we would just disrupt that and that what we would see on the other side is the beauty of the kingdom of God. Ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. This podcast is part of the ministry of Compass Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, please check out compasscfc.com.